Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Vel akıbetü lel muttakin ve la udvana illa alel zalimin. Salatu ve selamu ala ashrafil enbiya'i vel mursalin. I don't know if they're doing a hips back there. Are you got, when is your tajweed class? When's your tajweed though? Mondays. Mondays? So we're going to take this class starving. Like miskeen on an empty stomach. No snacks. Alhamdulillah, we're gonna rise up. Ah, no. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, it's not even Alicia's job. She came in with sadaqah last time. Sadaqah. It wasn't even Alicia's job last time, but it was a sadaqah. We're getting used to it, though. Who wants a agua? That's true. No, we're, today is gonna be one third water and two thirds air. <laughs> now, remember what we said. They began the seerah of the Prophet It was all what we call clandestine, which is hidden. And then Omar ibn Khattab came. When Omar ibn Khattab came, and we talked about his conversion a couple weeks back, that him and Hamza provided the two pillars that would allow a new, them to turn a corner. And the, the corner that was turned is that now they could be open. Now they, no one could fight them head, head on. So when you can't fight them head on, okay, what do you have to do? You have to do a war of attrition, which was the ban. And we studied the ban and its annulment, okay? Then right after the ban, okay, Right after the ban, it looked like they were really almost home free. Because now, you tried to fight them head on, you couldn't. You tried to do a war of attrition, you couldn't. So the third thing now, it looked, everything was perfect, but no, now Allah has his own will, right? What now? Now, all right, the year of sadness occurred. And now that's the internal. Right? So they had a trial and a tribulation internally, which really was, it was the will of Allah Azza wa Jal that they not have that uh, sweep in Mecca, that they go elsewhere. Right? So the year of sadness was firstly the death of a Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. Khadija bin Khuwaylid from the Bani Asad clan of Quraysh. And when she passed on, it was grief for not only the prophets of Allah but he had to his grief had he had five griefs his own grief for losing Khadija and the grief of witnessing your daughter's grief so he had four daughters now four daughters watching their mother die and you have to watch them watch their mother die and a Sayyidah Fatima is not old she was very young okay so he had to be with them as well so, uh, especially Sayyidah Fatima was especially uh, grieved by her, her mother's passing. And this took up a lot of the Messenger's time. And when you look at anyone who wants to do any work in the world, you need something very important, which is stability in the home. If you lack stability in the home, you can't do anything outside your house. You're just going at two-fourths of the speed or half speed. So the Prophet finally... Uh, when finally he had Umar and Hamza and then finally the Quray, all their attempts had come to an end all of a sudden he lost stability in his home right? he no longer had that support in his house but moreover the entire situation changed as well upon the death of Abu Talib when Abu Talib passed on it was pretty much the rule of law had basically been suspended it's like it had been cut and now Abu Lahab takes over and he basically is encouraging everyone to break the law, the tribal law, and attack my nephew. So now the Prophet's attacks on the Prophet came directly upon him. He was no longer protected. Directly upon him. So what they would do is take dung, which is basically you slaughter an animal for food, you take the guts, the intestines, the stomach. They, they would take that, swing it around, and throw it on the Prophet while he was praying. Right? So the Prophet would have this dung on him when he was praying, blood and filth. Then he took it, went out. He, one time this happened. Took it on a stick, 
and went out in front of the, all the people and said, Oh Quraysh, what kind of protection is this? Because we have tribe, they have a tribal law. Don't think the tribal law is nothing. It's a big deal, right? That's their law. Tribe protects tribe, right? Clan protects clan. So he went to them. What, what kind of protection is this, right? And showed them the guts and the, all the blood that's on him now. So when that was lost, it was pretty much sealed that they were not, they had to leave. Now they had to leave. So when they had to leave, this was not easy. The Prophet, peace be upon him, began going around to the tribes. Now, the Prophet would go around offering Islam to the people. And then, see, who will house this great thing and protect it? And he went to Ta'if. When he went to Ta'if, he came upon a bitter rejection from Ta'if. Right? A very famous story. He went to Ta'if, he went to the homes of three men. Right? Three of the leaders. And all of them mocked him in a different way. They said, one of them said, if you're truly a messenger, why do you need me? Right? Another one said, either you're truthful or you're a liar. If you're a liar, the other one, he mocked him, he said, if you're a messenger, right, either you're a messenger or you're a false prophet. If you're a false prophet, I don't want to talk to you. And if you're a messenger, I'm not worthy of talking to you. Right? Mocking him. Another said, you're either telling the truth or you're a liar. If you're telling the truth, then the truth will succeed without me. And if you're a liar, then I don't want to talk to you. And the third one said, has, any, has Allah not found anyone except you? SubhanAllah. Right? And this is actually mentioned in the Quran, that, this, that one of them said this. So he left and the boys pelted him. Right? They, they sent the family, they sent the boys out to pelt him. Then when he had finally left the outskirts of the village, he came upon a little vine, uh, garden and he sat in the garden and he took shade under the garden. Then one of the nobles of this city is called Ta'if. Ta'if is a city next to Mecca and the tribe is called Thaqif. So this, this city considered themselves to be like the sister city of Mecca, like the number two to Mecca. So, and they had their own god too. So uh, one of them, he saw the Messenger وسلم, sitting, looking at his wounds. And he said, he thought, felt a little bit bad because he's royalty, we're royalty. In other words, he's from the upper class of his tribe. We're from the nobles of our tribe. So he sent his boy to his servant, not his son, his servant, to go give him some grapes. So he went and he presented some grapes. And thereupon the Prophet وسلم, reached for a grape and said, Bismillah. And then the man, the servant stopped. And he said, where did you learn that? He said, and you know this word? He said, yes, this is the word of our prophet from uh, Iraq, from Nineveh, Nineveh in Iraq. He said, Yunus. Prophet said, I know Yunus. Yunus is my brother. He's a prophet and I'm a prophet. And all prophets are taught the same. So immediately the man kissed the prophet's hand, kissed his feet. Right? And took shahada. And all this while the man is watching, right? So the man goes crazy. I just sent the boy, and immediately he enters Islam just like that. So, what was the point of that? That point of the story is actually very important because when you go through, through so much hardship, even a great messenger like the Prophet, it's not easy. Some people think, oh, you're the messenger, so it should be like bulletproof, like you're Superman. You have no emotions, no feelings. Rather, the Prophet ﷺ at that moment had just completed a very powerful dua. A very powerful dua. In which he had said, Oh Allah, to whom will you send me? To people such as this to mock me and to hurt me, right? To uh, rejectors who, call, who make, call me a liar. Uh, and then he says, he closes it, he says, in fact, as long as you're pleased with me, then I accept everything. I have no problem with anything. And he wept, subhanAllah, Prophet sallallahu This dua was a powerful dua. And uh, wish I actually had the Arabic of it here, but we don't have it here in this book. But this was a powerful prayer that the Prophet sallallahu made and uh, uh, wept prof you know, profusely. And then at that moment, that boy came.
like confirming him, right? So it's like a sign from Allah Azza wa Jal. You're on the right track, keep going. So now, at the time of Hajj, there was another situation in which, remember, Mecca is a period of Hajj. And at the Hajj, all the uh, tribes of the Arabs come. They all come. And when they come, okay, this was a chance for the Prophet to go. So at the Hajj season, every Hajj, the Prophet, peace be upon him, would go out to the people and uh, go out to the people, different tribes, and explain to them Islam and see if they'd enter. Now, his uncle Abu Lahab became furious about this. And he went out and he would beat him to the tents of the tribes and he would tell them, he would tell all of them, be careful, we have one of our, we apologize on behalf of Quraysh, we have one of our family members, he's a little off in the head, right? And he, he's going to come to you claiming he's a prophet, just ignore him, right? So he, that's how vicious Abu Lahab was. So the prophet would go and they would listen and as soon as he starts speaking about Islam, they would all say, oh, that's the one Abu Lahab talking, just ignore him, get up, leave, pretend you're not, you're busy, right? All these things. So this is how vicious Abu Lahab was. Now, from the other perspective though, when you look from retrospectively though, how many nations, how many tribes would have accepted the Prophet, peace be upon him? But Allah did not want them to accept it. Allah wanted one group of people to accept the Messenger So he actually poisoned their ears through Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab poisoned their ears, right? So that they would actually not listen. And they didn't listen, right? So that really there's only one tribe that accepted to listen. And this was actually not even the type of, the Prophet didn't go to them, right? Rather, in Yathrib, and we remember in Yathrib, the Prophet has connections to Yathrib, right? His connections to Yathrib are that his great-grandmother, mother of Abdul Muttalib, her name is what? Salma. Salma is from Yathrib. She's from the Bani Najjar tribe. She's from the Bani Najjar tribe okay, of the Khazraj. And even till today, the Najjar exists. Right? The Najjar exists and they are very proud that they exist. Okay. The, Abu, uh, uh, the father of the Prophet and the mother of the Prophet both passed away in the vicinity of Yathrib. So there's a lot of connections. The Prophet used to visit his relatives of Bani Najjar in Yathrib as well. And there the messenger learned how to swim. Many people don't know that the Prophet knew how to swim. They had pools in Yathrib. They had little, like, little lakes and oases and they had water. So they had pools and there the Prophet learned how to swim. And the pools of Arabia are some of the best pools because they're just warm all the time. Right? In Tarim, Yemen, they have a pool basically that everyone goes swimming in. And they have, I don't know if it's still there today, but in my day it was there. Uh, basically, I mean, they don't have chlorine or anything, it's just water. And you just go in, uh, take a swim in the evening, right? So the Prophet knew how to learn how to swim in Yathrib. So he knew Yathrib. He was a stranger to Yathrib. And they knew of Quraysh that they had a link to him. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And uh, at that time, six people came to meet the Prophet in a location called Aqaba, right? And the first one of them to enter Islam, his name was Iyas. Yes. So six people entered Islam on the spot and talked to the Prophet about another thing. They brought up another problem that they had, which was that Yathrib was engulfed in a civil war. Engulfed in a civil war. So now, let's take a pause here and talk about Yathrib, this city where the Prophet's going. So we need to know at least something about it, right? So this city is starkly different than Mecca. Starkly different from Mecca. How is it different? So let's take it one step at a time. Geographically, how is it different from Mecca? Geographically, Mecca is between two mountains. It's dry and arid. Okay. Um, it's, there's no vegetation and no water, aside from, of course, Zemzem. All right, which was only recently discovered in the previous generation. In contrast, uh, Yathrib is not blocky. There are no mount there's a mountain tract, 
big difference between a mountain and a mountain tract. A mountain tract is like a, hill, a long hill, whereas a mountain is up. So what's the difference? Mountains block the air. So the air in Mecca was tight, it was dusty, and it was not fresh. The air in Medina is the exact opposite. It's very fresh. Medina's flat. It's full of water. It's full of green palm trees. It has soil, like rich soil, right? And it has tracts around it, right? Mountain tract means like a big hill. So it doesn't block the air. It had fresh air. And literally today, even with all the industrialization and the materialist materialism that's going on in Medina, it's still amazing when you spend four or five days in Mecca and then you drive over to Medina, it feels very different. Like these are two polar opposite environments. The air is different. The horizon is different. Mecca's all surrounded by mountains. Medina's flat. Medina's all trees, palm trees, right? So uh, Yathrib was a beautiful location, very different from Mecca. So that's geographic. Let's go to economic. Economy is very important, right? Economics is very important. Number one, we already said in the previous lecture that economics teaches or influences people's behavior. So the job that you do, your occupation, alters your behavior, 100%. Anyone who doesn't know this so really doesn't know anything. Your, the occupation that you do from 9 to 5 for 30 years influences your behavior. If you're a nurse, you become caring. You learn how to care. If you're a teacher, if you're a lecturer, there are actually some negatives. Lecturers have a negative, is that they're not used to listening, they're used to talking, right? They're used to being the know-it-all in the room. So that's why lecturing is actually quite a issue. But obviously you, gain, you have the knowledge element. So every occupation, what is the occupation of the people of Mecca? They're merchants. Go, right, buy stuff from Syria, come back, sell it in Mecca for a higher price, right? Go down to Yemen in the winter, get stuff, sell it back in Mecca for a higher price. Right? Now, merchants, if you got a, suppl uh, a supplier that no one else has access to, right, and you have customers that you have a monopoly over a region right, that you control, right, life is good. But as soon as com competition comes in, so in the world of business, it's worse competition than sports. It's far worse than sports. Competition in business is nasty, right? You look at the history of cable, right? It's a history of wars between the cable companies. Now cable's like this, cable's khalas. We all envision a world, no, people don't even know what cable is, some people, right? <laughs> it's just like, why do we need this huge remote control and cable? Why? The TV should just be another screen that's controlled from your phone, right? That's just internet-based. Cable is going to be obsolete, right? So you had a guy like Ted Turner, basically invented cable, right? Ted Turner came in. He's basically the founder of cable in Atlanta. He starts CNN, he starts TBS, right? Turner Broadcast System. He starts all sorts of, he controls cable. And then ESPN tries to get him, right? Uh, the, the networks. So basically, business is war, right? It's competition, nasty competition and it's negotiations. It's back and forth negotiations, right? Until you come to something. But lies, hatred, envy, all exists. And it's a fast world, right? Very fast in the world of business. And the Meccans were like this. Because when you're, when you're negotiating, if you need to, if there's competition, you might have to lie, right? It's haram. The Prophet said the, the honest merchant is like a martyr on Yom Al-Qiyamah. Okay, so in negotiations also, people don't know about negotiations. If you don't know how to negotiate, you, you'll be schooled and taken advantage of by people who do, right? The first rule of negotiation is called anchoring, right? And how well you anchor will dictate the whole thing, right? How well you anchor dictates the whole thing. So basically it's like this, right? Let's say you wanna sell something. You don't go immediately to the most reasonable price. You go far outlandish to an extreme, right? Then, when you come a quarter of the way over, you look very reasonable, right? But in fact, you're still halfway to reasonable. This is what anchoring is, right? 
So what the important thing about anchoring is for you to drop a number first, because then you anchor it, right? That's what anchoring means. So when you look, let's say we're, I'm a seller. Let's say I'm a seller, right? When I drop a number, I'm not gonna say, I'm, I'll sell you this, uh, this, this gold thing for, let's say, I know in my head, if I get 200, I'm happy. I got it for 100. If I get 200, I'm happy. 300, very good. So what I'm gonna say is, I said, look, I'm not gonna do what other people do and sell it to you for 1,000, right? So I've, I just anchored you. Your mind now is at 1,000. Whether you know it or not, because I just said that. But I said it in an innocent way. I said, I'm not gonna do that, right? So you can't accuse me of, 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 of highballing you, right? So we've already anchored you. Because I, and I've put it, gave an image that other people are selling it for 1,000. It could be true, it could not be true, right? right? So by saying that statement, you're way out there. Now, if I can get you now, now you're going to say a number. You now, now that we've anchored at 1,000, you're not going to say 200. That's absurd. You're going to have to come somewhere closer to 1,000, right? Immediately, if you accept my anchoring with your counterproposal, that means you take into consideration my anchoring, right? And you say, oh, and then you say to yourself, well, I can't say 200, so I'll say maybe 500. Immediately, you're lost. You lost. Right? So what you have to do is hang up the phone. That's what you have to do. As soon as someone says, a thousand, it's a trick. You know it's a trick. Hang up the phone. Immediately. Right? <laughs> hang up the phone. Walk away. Then, if you know it's a, it's a game, you make yourself walk back. How? You, you keep your phone there. You walk out. You come back ten minutes later. Oh, I forgot my phone. Okay? That's an excuse to resume negotiation. Say, hey, you want to start over, right? And then he knows that you're not stupid anymore, and he'll go straight to the point. 500, you say no. 200, 350, that's a good deal, right? This is how negotiations work. So much of negotiation, people who don't know negotiation, they get startled, right? People, uh, they, they get so shaken, they, it's like funny and sad to watch at the same time. You realize, how this is a studied ploys that they do, right? So Meccans are like that. They're conniving, tricky, smooth, slick. Now let's zoom over to Yathrib. What's their job? They're farmers. Farmers, right? There's no negotiation in farming, right? I got two potatoes. Give me, three, give me 10 carrots, right? Or whatever. It's a going trade. There's no negotiation on a, a, a bucket of dates a bucket of potatoes, right? There's not negotiation here, right? This is not a rare commodity that you got from Syria that you risked your life to get, right? Because you know what they used to also do? They exaggerate the story of the travel. So they traveled to Syria. You're not gonna say, oh, we took a very beautiful, luxurious uh, horseback ride to Syria, got the goods and came back. No, you're gonna say, we went and risked my life to go to Syria to get this for you, right? The value of this is my life. Right? Well, you can't do that if you grew some carrots. Right? <laughs> okay. You can't do that when you grow some carrots. Kalas, right? You got some carrots. That's nice. You get the same carrots every year. Right? A carrot is a carrot. If you don't give me the carrot, he will. Right? So you got commodities. There's a big difference between commodities. Right? And then what's the opposite of a commodity? Like an innovative new product. Right? So you go to Syria, you get new stuff. You go to Yemen, you get new stuff. In Yathrib, it's the same stuff. Dates are dates, goats are goats, and potatoes are potatoes. It's all the same, right? So their life is economically stable, which is good for the mind, right? So they're farmers. Now the next thing is, let's go from geography, economics, politics. What's the political structure in Mecca? It's the opposite now. It's the opposite. The political structure in Mecca is very stable. Quraysh is on top, end of discussion. There's no competition, right? There's no competition to Quraysh. Uh, Abdul Muttalib dies, it goes to Abu Talib. Abu Talib dies, it goes to Abu Lahab, right? There is no battle for who's in charge. So it's very stable. You go now to Yathrib. Yathrib consists of five tribes. Two tribes consist, uh, or, or, or uh, Two tribes are 75% of, comprised of 75% of the city. 
And these tribes are the two sons of a woman named Qayla. One is Aus and one is Khazraj. So their great-grandmother is called Qayla. So the two tribes are called Aulad Qayla, the sons of Qayla. And in Medina, you notice that they attribute their tribe to their mother, right? Their, their lineage is from the father, but the tribes are from the mother. So we're going to get to the gender element. Of course, you know, in those worlds, there was no such word of gender. It was an issue of gender, but there is uh, some difference, which we'll get to, between Mecca and Medina. Aus uh, and Khazraj. The two tribes are Al Aus and Al Khazraj are the two sons of Qayla, and they're comprised 75% of Medina, and they're at war with one another. They are at war with one another. They've been at war for the entire lifetime that they, for their lifetime, of their adults of their time. And in fact, it's so bad that they don't remember what's the reason for the war. That's how bad it was. They don't re remember the reason for the war. Okay? That they were at war with one another. Okay? So in the Germanic tribes, they had blood feuds. Right? If you killed someone, you have to pay. If you don't pay, it's a blood feud. Which means, right, that we can pick off one of your men at any time. And then they're going to now say, well, you picked off a man who was of greater value than your victim. So they kill each other back and forth that could last a whole lifetime. Right? The Germanic tribes are not like um, what many people think and how the Romans portrayed the Germanic tribes. The Romans portrayed the Germanic tribes as these... Ghouls like cavemen with clubs, and uh, like if you watch Gladiator in these movies where the Romans are in line and yet the Germanics are crazy. The Germanic tribes were not like that. The Germanic tribes had amazing systems that you could learn from. One of their systems was that their ruler, the ruler of the time, was chosen by his peers amongst the veterans of war. Right? The veterans of war who had fought with valor, they choose from amongst themselves who should rule. Look how much wisdom there is in this. So you don't have a civilian up there who is a fluffy civilian ruling the soldiers. No. You, got, you have a guy who has seen war. Right? And he knows the harm of warfare. So you have a guy who's going to avoid war. Right? That's the wisdom of their system. And they did not have uh, inheritance of kings. You didn't inherit it to your son. Unless your own people, right? Your own people, soldiers, you made your son a soldier, right? And then your son became the most valiant soldier. But how rare is this? It's going to be very rare. Because it's by seniority, right? Any system that's by seniority is stable. Any system that's, by, that's not is not stable. Right? So it's by seniority. You log in the time, you rise up. It's stable. Right? So this is the Germanic system. The Germanic people were not stupid people. Now, the other three tribes, 25% of the city of Medina, Yathrib, okay, consists of three Jewish tribes. Bani Nadir, Bani Qainuqa, and Bani Quraidah. Right? Three Jewish tribes. So now let's shift to the religious scope between the two cities. Mecca is all pagans. It's the hub of pagans. They have the Hajj in which everyone comes, bring your gods, all worship. It's like a Hindu temple. They turned it into a Hindu temple. Astaghfirullah. I mean, it's probably like, uh, I don't know, some racial, whatever, hurt feelings situation right there. Right. But that's what they did. They, they took the Kaaba and made it into a pantheon of idols, right? All idolatry, right, in Mecca. And they had Hanifs. Hanif means, I'm one of you, but I don't worship your idols. I just worship Allah. That's it. Hanif, on the old ways of Ibrahim. And on the outskirts, there may be one or two Christian monks, right? You go to Medina and it's the opposite. Of course, they're pagans but not so staunchly pagan, like they don't have the heads, they're just pagans. But they have a lot of Jews. 25% of the city, Jewish people. Maybe less, right? Jewish people, right? 
And so they know about the Jews. They know about the concept of afterlife, the concept of the Jewish religion, the basics is there. One God, prophets, they know these things, but they're pagan. So now let's move down to uh, what next? We said the situation. So we, I mentioned gender in a sense. There was a difference between the roles, the gender, the power in the genders, between Mecca and Medina. In Mecca, it was dominated by the male. The male dominated everything. In Yathrib, that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case. Women had a lot more say in things than men. Omar bin Khattab, he complained. He complained that as soon as, we, since we come to Yathrib, his wife is now yelling at him, right? Okay. She never used to do that in Mecca, right? So the women in Yathrib, also women of Yathrib in, uh, how do we say this? In cohabitation, right? In cohabitation, women were dominant in Mecca. Whereas in the sexual process in, Me in Mecca, the men were dominant, right? So even that, they actually knew it. It was like, people know these things, right? People know these things. So they even commented on it. That in Yathrib, right, where in Mecca, a woman is like docile and controlled in the bedroom. In Yathrib, it's the opposite. The women of Yathrib were dominant. So much so that in the family structure, you notice that the Messenger وسلم, never did not marry a woman of Yathrib. He never married a woman of Yathrib. So why is that? If he loved those people so much. He said, the city I love most is Mecca. But the people I love most are the people of Yathrib, right? So actually, the Prophet's way of balance is amazing, how he separates things. His people said, what do you like better? What do you love better, Mecca or Medina? He said, no, the city of Mecca, but the people of Yathrib. He said, if the people of Yathrib go down a path and all the rest of the world goes down another path, I go there with the people of Yathrib. Reason being is that he never married a woman of Yathrib because they did not like polygamy. They didn't like multiple marriages, right? They had it, but they didn't like it. Whereas in Mecca, it was a norm. So this is why the Prophet, to appreciate that, right? And I actually never looked up the tribal origins of uh, all of the wives of the Prophet but I'm just taking that based upon, because I actually have doubt upon that story too, because we have Umm Salam, right? She's from Yathrib, right? Umm Salam is from Yathrib, right? So maybe... Um, it's in the book. Huh? It's in the, the book by... Yeah. So that's a claim that someone made, but I'm thinking about Umm Salama. Maybe they meant he never married like a, a girl who was never previously married, right? That's a difference. So as you're previously married, it's a very different experience than if you're already married, right? So maybe that's what they meant. So that's the, something to look into and think about. Now the next point is that, and actually Umm Salama, when she married the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, she had complained and said, I'm an old woman with kids, who will marry me, right? She was 29. 29, right? And she said all herself an old woman, right? SubhanAllah, right? Which goes to show you about when they called bridegrooms, child, whatever, right? 29, she considers herself old. So they were marrying very young. Right? So in Yathrib, that was some, these are some of the differences. Now, what happened? The second year around, second year, 12 came from Yathrib. 12 men. And this, they took an oath of allegiance with the Messenger وسلم, called Bay'atu Al-Aqaba Al-Ula. Right? The first oath of allegiance of Aqaba, right? Aqaba is a location, okay? And there uh, they sent, the Prophet ﷺ sent them back and he sent with them the prince of Quraysh. The prince of Quraysh, Mus'ab ibn Umair, right? Mus'ab ibn Umair, handsome, eloquent young man, right? Savvy, very savvy young man, not rough and tough, no a very attractive person 
in his speech, his manners, everything was very attractive in him. So he went back with them and he taught them Islam. And when he got there, he would pray with them and there were only a few converts, 12 people, 12 converts. So there, he was sitting one time in a garden when things changed in Yathrib. Things changed in Yathrib in one day, one day. He was sitting in a garden with the people, two, three people, talking. And then Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, very important person. He was the chief of one of the biggest clans of Aus, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. And he is sitting with his number two named Usaid, and they're watching. And he has a spear in his hand. And he said, this man has come, Musab, taking advantage of our weak-minded and bringing a new religion in our location, right? He said, well, it's not going to happen under my watch. It's not going to happen. So he said, go now, Usaid, go, because I don't want to get into a conflict and tell them to this person, stop spreading this new religion. So Usaid goes to Mus'ab and he sits and he says, holds his spear and he says, you have to get up. We're not doing any of this proselytizing in our location, in our city. Just like if someone comes here and tries to bring some bid'ah, right? You're gonna, it's going to be taken care of, right? If someone comes to MBIC and tries to talk stuff, you know it's going to be taken care of. He's not coming through the door. He's not even coming through the door, right? It'll be sniffed out, right? So that's how when you have lo like local neighborhoods where everyone knows everyone, it's hard to get in, right? It's very hard to get in, okay? Because once you get in, it's very hard to kick you out, right? Because if you don't all know each other, right? You're, if you have a really bad relationship with one person, well, you're going to have a good relationship with 75% of the rest. It's very hard to kick someone out, right? So, and you can't. It's a local neighborhood. What are you going to do? So, Usaid goes, and Mus'ab says, okay, I have a proposition. How about you sit down, listen to what I have to say. If you don't like it, if you like it, good. If you don't like it, then we'll talk about what we're going to do. He said, that's fair. So he, sit, he puts his spear in the ground, flips it upside down, stabs it in the ground, and sits down. He sits down, and he listens. Immediately upon recitation of the Qur'an, he manages his heart. And his nature changes. Right? He asks a couple questions. And then he just simply asks, what does someone have to do to enter this deen? Right? He says, go make a ghus, take a ghus, and come back. He went to a nearby area of water, took a shower, right? took a ghus, purified his clothes from any filth, came back. Says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Became Muslim on the spot. Right? Now, Sa'ad is waiting and he's watching all this. Right? He comes back, he said, Give me the spear, you fool. Right? You fool converted, didn't you? Right? <laughs> Give me the spear. And he goes, Right? He goes, stands over them, and he says, You're not proselytizing, spreading a new religion in our, in our, in our neighborhood. Get up. Okay, because the host was Sad's cousin, right? And they're in Sad's neighborhood, right? So Musab says the same thing. He says, "How about you sit down and listen, right? If you don't like it, we'll talk, right? And if you like it, then good." Okay. So Sad sits down. Anchor. Yeah, he already anchored, right? He anchored him down to listen. And you see, once someone accepts your proposal, you know they'll they'll listen, right? The type of person who won't listen is hard to deal with. So he said, that's why they always call you for a meeting. If you accept the meeting, then something's gonna change. If, you don't, if the person refused to have a meeting, then it's very hard to deal with, right? That's why in politics, it's very important to think whether you accept or reject a meeting. As soon as you accept a meeting, you're accepting a negotiation. You're saying, I will negotiate, right? And there'll be some give and take. So that's why politicians, they're very careful whether they accept a meeting or not. So he goes in, and uh, he sits, and within minutes, recitation of Quran, right? He enters Islam, becomes Muslim. Sa'ad is a strong, he's like the Umar of Yathrib, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. There's two Sa'ads. Two Sa'ads are the leaders of the tribes. Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh and Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, right? Immediately, Sa'ad 
makes an announcement, make an announcement, get everyone, get the whole tribe. Bring the whole tribe. The whole tribe starts coming in slowly, right? Until Sa'ad, he said, I have an announcement. What's my position amongst you? He said, you're our leader. He said, you accept me as your leader? They said, how could we not? You've been our leader our whole life. He said, how, what do you say of my judgment? It's the best of judgment. He said, then I'm not talking to any of your men or women until you accept Islam. Right? <laughs> that was sad and wrath, right? By nightfall, not a single man or woman from that tribe had accepted he was Muslim. On one day, on one turn. So tribes and gangs, that's how they operate, in block, the whole tribe, in block. Because you trust your leader, you love your leader, right? And that's how tribes operate. The Arabs until today are like that, right? In Syria, you know what's happening in Syria now? It's all gangs, right? Militias, militias. So, it was, oh, militias. Hold on a second. If you're in a war-torn country, this is a natural response. You break up into groups. If you can now get the militia leaders to come together and have peace with one another and trade, right? Then you have peace, right? You can't have every man for himself. No, you have to have militias, right? And this is whenever you have the breakdown of nationhood, you have gangs, tribes, or militias, right? And, and militias is just a type of modern term for tribes. But they're not necessarily collected, uh, connected by blood. That's the problem. It's closer to a gang. But these are tribes. They're connected by blood. So he turned all of, um, basically a huge percentage of the city, maybe 30 or 40%, in one day. Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh into Islam. So finally the year passed and Sa'ad came back with 75 people from Yathrib. 72 men and 3 women went to the Prophet in Mecca. Right now, when you have now, by this point, so that was in the middle of the year. Imagine the rest of the year, the constant trickle into Islam, basically almost more than half the cities enter Islam. So they went in to the Prophet ﷺ. They met him at Aqaba, the, second, the third time now. So this is two years have elapsed. First year, six. Second year, 12. Third year, 75. Now this is a big group, right? So he calls for Al-Abbas, his uncle, who has not yet accepted Islam, but the Prophet knows he's a mu'min. Right? He's a supporter. And now, this is a serious matter, because now they're going to call him to come and move to Yathrib. And they come, and they have a secret meeting in the middle of the night at Aqaba, in the middle of the Hajj season, and they explain to him. What they explain to him, though, in it is the seed, and what they're about to explain, is the seed of the new type of enemy that the Muslims will face. They say between us, the Aus and the Khazraj, we are at each other's throats, killing each other for a lifetime. And we need to end this. We were about to put up Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul as our king. We were going to choose a king. However, it wasn't going to work because he's from one of the tribes. He's from one of the Aus and the Khazraj. Which one is he from? Aus? I can't remember which tribe. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. I think he was from... I can't remember which one. He was from one of the tribes. Okay. So he's going to be biased. It's not, if, it's not fair. right? If you have uh, the bloods and the crypts, they want to stop killing each other. right? And then they choose one of the bloods to be in charge. Well, that's not fair. It needs to be an outsider. So they said to him, we were about to put Abdullah ibn Ubay as our king, but inside the heart of some of us, it's not accepted. So we want you to be our leader. So what is the seed of the new enemy? Is that Abdullah ibn Ubay, literally, as the Prophet was coming, the crown was being made for him, and he lost it. And whenever someone goes in, and has power and is about to have power and then it's taken away from him right sometimes people never recover and he is someone who never got over that and he became the chief of the hypocrites of those people 
who entered Islam with their tongues but not with their hearts. Right? So Al-Abbas came and they wrote a contract. They wrote a deal or they had a deal. Abbas made sure to protect the rights of the Prophet in this deal with the Aws and Khazraj. The deal is, you're going to go. The Prophet will be your leader. The enemy of the Prophet is their enemy. And their enemy is the enemy of the Prophet. Right? So that means anyone attacks the Prophet's side, right? all the Aws and Khazraj have to support it, defend it. And anyone who attacks the Aws and Khazraj, the Prophet too is their enemy. Right? So this is like a political alliance. All right? So now the Prophet, not only that, they become his Sahaba. They entered Islam. So now the process of the Hijrah begins slowly. Right? And the slowly everyone starts leaving. It's very slowly. Right? And they're about to go. And this is basically the halfway point. And next week, inshallah, we'll take the actual Hijrah, the enter, entry into Medina. Right? And um, now the mission now is a 10-year run with the one goal in mind in Medina. When the Prophet ﷺ goes to Yathrib and it becomes called Medina to Nabi or Medina for short, there's one goal. And that goal is Mecca. They have one target. If Mecca can come into Islam, the whole of Arabia will come into Islam. That's it. Everything else, everything is geared to getting this one crown jewel of the, of the peninsula into Islam, uh, city of Mecca. We'll close with a little story that once the word spread amongst the Sahaba, and everyone knew now, even in Mecca, that the Muslims were making hijrah. After, some few real, after a while, people realized there's no Muslims in the city anymore. They realized they're all leaving. So now they're on guard. Omar was one of the last people to leave. How did Omar make hijrah? Omar ibn Khattab stood up in the middle of the day and he said, everyone's sneaking, right, to make hijrah. Sneak at night, go at night time, right? Omar doesn't do that. <laughs> middle of the day, he stands up and he announces, I'm going to make the hijrah. Does anyone here want their kids to be orphans today? Or their wives to be widows, come and stop me. <laughs> and he goes, he makes the hijrah, right? So this is the way of Omar ibn Khattab. SubhanAllah. So we'll stop here. If anyone has any comments or questions, we can take those. Yeah. Okay. His name was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salud. They called that the second. Because uh, it was the third meeting, but the second oath of first wasn't any oath of allegiance. So they called the second meeting, they called the first oath of allegiance of Aqaba. Aqaba is the location. The uh, third meeting is the second uh, bay'ah or oath of uh, allegiance. Because in the first one, there was no arms, there was no war. In the second one, there's an oath that you're gonna, there's, this could be war, right? So the first one, they call it, um, uh, you know, just a, it's a bay'ah, it's an oath of allegiance just on Islam. But the second one, it's on Islam and defense of one another. That they would have to defend the Prophet, these people. So these people, yani, they took a big risk. When, when imagine, yani, you're like a, a um, Medina, I mean, what would a state like Ohio, right? And you have a refuge coming from New York, right? And you're Ohio, you don't want to wage war against New York, right? But that's what they did, right? They said, we accept to be at war with Mecca. That's a huge risk. But they were honored. Why were they honored to have the Prophet What do they know about prophecy? Well, remember, they had the Jews, right? The Jews used to say, the last messenger is coming, and when he comes, they assumed it's going to be from them, right? When he comes, we're going to slaughter you all, right? So the Jews, they, the Yahud used to say this. They used to say this. When the last prophet comes, right, he's going to come to us and we're going to slaughter. So we would say, okay, 
if the last prophet comes, wouldn't you want to guide them? Right? This is actually a sign of true and false spirituality is like this. False spirituality always puts down and cuts off. True spirituality wants to include. Right? It wants to say, look, this is true. Let me raise you up. And if you hit my hand and turn me away, I'll keep trying to raise you up. The true spirituality raises up even the one day that hates them, that tries to raise up everyone. False spirituality cuts people off right, and tries to create hierarchies of superiority to put people down. Right? This is in spirituality. We're not talking about doctrine here. Doctrine is different. Doctrine is clear. It's Muslim is Muslim, not Muslim is not Muslim. A heretic is heretic, right? But as someone who, if, as anyone who truly believes they're true, you want to bring those people into the truth, right? You want to bring people into the haq. And that's a sign that someone's uh, Islam is actually sincere and not for pride, right? And this is very important. So obviously they were using their prophethood for political gains, right? Material reasons and not necessarily for true... Uh, and when we get to this, this uh, Yathrib, you're going to see that there, were a, there was a Jewish rabbi who became, in fact, one of the most noble of people. Right? Abdullah ibn Salam. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Hmm. Sayyidina Isa was from... He was... He was from the Bani Israel, but he can't really be called Bani Israel because Bani Israel means sons of Israel, right? He has no father, right? But he is counts as Bani Israel through the mother. Yeah. Right after Prophet Isa. Right after Prophet Isa. Yeah. To Arabia? Yeah, after Isa, that's it. After Isa, there was five, six hundred years, and then Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So by this time, the whole world had a concept of monotheism. They had a concept, right, between meeting Jews and meeting Christians. They had a concept. So when Islam came to Yemen, East Africa, uh, Syria, right, Persia, they all had a concept of this idea that there's one God, Abraham is the founder of that religion, right? Or he's the first prophet. There's one God, there's afterlife, heaven and hell. They all have this idea, right? So, yeah. All right, if that's it, inshallah, next week, the hijrah, and then it's a march of the struggle against the Quraysh, but also the various uh, laws that were revealed. We'll do that inshallah next week. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruk wa natuhu ilayk. Wa al-asr inna al-insana rafi khus. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa amanu salat. Wa tawasubna. Wa tawasubna. Wa salamu alaykum.